RadioInfluence.com. It's another edition of The Rock Stops Here. A very interesting guest today. And I don't know how long you stay for these podcasts, but this one's probably a good half hour I sit down with my guest. Then after that, I give you some stories. Uh, what's going on? The little life of Riley. I'm, I, I was actually inside an NFL locker room for the first time in like three years. It's opened back up uh, covering the Buccaneers. I'll tell you all about that. There's a lot of different stuff going on, but let me get to who I have today. My guest on The Rock Stops Here is now a long time. Ray's TV broadcaster, working for Bally's, Brian Anderson. He's known as B.A. Very interesting career as a player. Now, he's an analyst, so obviously, even if you don't know, you know the specifics, you know that he played, and he was a pitcher. And he's really, really good at breaking down the game, uh, knowing pitchers' tendencies, but the game overall, he's one of the best in the business. Uh, he did some national broadcasts, but... What a pitcher coming out of college, Wright State. He was the third overall pick in the draft. Third overall. That's best in the world. It's incredible. Ups and downs. You know, he made it to the majors. Uh, a couple different teams. Good years, not so good years. Injuries. There was actually a time, which I didn't remember, that when he was with the Rays and trying to make a comeback with the Devil Rays and Joe Madden was the manager, he just couldn't do it anymore. You know, injuries, arm injuries. He couldn't do it anymore. But Joe Madden wanted to keep him around. So he went down and he was a coach. And then he was a coach. And then he would go up in the booth and broadcast the game. I don't know how many in Major League Baseball history have ever been a coach. And then they shower and then change and come up and do the TV broadcast. Well, he's done it. He did it. He's still doing it with Dwayne Stats and doing a great job. The one, the only from the Rays, Bally Sports, B.A., Brian Anderson. All right, Brian Anderson, one of the best color analysts in all of baseball, joining me here on the Rock Stops. Here, how you doing, Brian? Rock, I'm I'm doing great. That intro, though, one of the best, <laughs> one of the best. No, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I'll tell you what, it is it is a lot of fun getting to do what I do. You know, having played, and nothing's ever going to beat being out there on the field and playing. However, I found that live TV is the next closest thing because if you're not prepared you will be exposed um i've got a great crew that i get to work with everybody gets along famously makes it fun to come to work and you know we go out bring the game to the people at home and try to have some fun doing it so i have a, I have a blast that that is a big key it's almost like being on a team and if you can get along i mean that that is half the battle is it not i think that that's a huge part of it you know it's funny all these years of working with Dwayne, and, and he has told me stories in the past of of play-by-play -play guys and color analysts that did not get along did not particularly care for each other and i cannot imagine the kind of schedule that we keep during the course of the season i cannot imagine coming to the ballpark day in and day out and sitting down for the kind of time that we spend together right. next to a guy that we didn't get along and didn't you just were, were not friendly and maybe as far as we didn't like each other that would be impossible for me i, I would have a hard time faking it yeah. Every single day throughout a game and then go back to being the sour guy sitting next to, you know, to, to someone right. I didn't get along with. Not, not fun. It's been a while now. You've been here a while. Uh, I remember when you took over from Joe McGrain and it's been a while, right? It certainly has. You know, I came down here in 2008 with the idea I was going to play again and ended up, you know, hurting my elbow for the third time. And that that was the time that you knew you were going to retire. And at that point I was called the day that after I blew out, I remember I was, I was walking on St. Pete beach and I got a phone call from Joe Madden and he said, this doesn't have to end. And I said, Joe, I'm done. I'm not trying to come back. It's, it's ended. He's like that. I'm not talking about playing. He goes, I want to keep you within the organization. He goes, and I'm going to create a position for you as the assistant pitching coach, wow. if you'll accept. I talked to Andrew Friedman, and he's in agreement, and we want to know if you'd like to do that. And, you know, I was wondering, what am I going to do moving forward? 
you know, the TV position that I had had with uh, up in Cleveland with, uh, you know, at that time, you know, Fox Sports Ohio, um, that was that was gone. And th- there wasn't really much for me to do. But that certainly intrigued me when he offered me that position. So I took it. And during the course of that year, Joe McGrain had to go to New York to do some Olympic baseball coverage from a studio. And they needed someone to fill in for six games or so. Ironically enough, the people that were up in Ohio had come from Sun Sports. So everybody knew each other. And they said, hey, you've got Brian Anderson down there on your staff. You gotta, if you're looking for a guy just to fill in for a few games and don't want to have to pull someone from you know God knows where, why don't you see if the team would let him do it? He, I think he could handle it because I had done some three-man booth with actually, ironically enough, Matt Underwood and, and Rick Manning uh, up there with the Indians at the time. And so uh, they came to me and said, would you mind filling in for six games? And I was like, sure. And that's kind of where it took off. I did the I did the six games. The next year, uh, Joe McGrain left. He had left after that season. They had brought Kevin Kennedy in, but he was only doing a hundred games because he was living in L.A. And that's right. And so they said, um, you know, would you mind doing? Could you do forty games? all of them on the road, but yet I was still on the coaching staff. That was a bizarre year, 2009, because I would be down with Jim Hickey going over, you know, with the pitchers like now during, you know, batting practice, go through the pitchers meeting, you know, before the first game of a series and then have to go hit the shower, throw on the the coat tie and go upstairs and then call the game. I didn't know And even, even having, you know, being privy to a lot of inside information that you couldn't take to the booth. Right. And so that was a really interesting year uh, doing that. And then the following year, it was I had to make a decision am I going to go full-time coaching right or am I going to go full-time TV the problem with the full-time TV is they could only offer me 50 games of being an analyst but they sweetened it by saying 50 games on the road you can do all 75 pregame shows at home with Todd Callis I I said that's enough work and that's when I went and so that was 2010 uh, and then 2011, I became the full-time, the full-time guy. I do. I, I do want to get obviously to your career in baseball and how, how you did all that. But I remember you also did national games and that was early in your career here yeah. doing the Rays. What was that like uh, on the big stage? Is it that much different? You're probably dealing with different production. Is it that much different when you were doing network games? You know what? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot different. It's a much more uh, pressured broadcast. It's a different broadcast. It's not as freewheeling as what we get to do, uh, you know, here on, on a, you know, on, on a regional scale with, you know, obviously now it's uh, uh, Bally Sports Sun. It's just a different broadcast. And it's much, much more, like I said, it's much more pressure. They're not as fun, but yet you open yourself to a, a wide audience. Right. So right. in that respect, it's, I see. you know, it's, it's worth it. And so, you know, I had an, a, a a lot of fun doing those games, even though they were different. Um, the opens are different. The game itself is different. The things that you have to get in are different. You've got to remember. And I try to do this anyway. Um, as much as I l- love the Rays and I want the Rays to do well, I try to call a game as close to down the middle as I can. Yeah. You know, if the other team is doing something well, you have to acknowledge it. Or, or I think that your credibility takes a hit. Right. And so, you know, you have to remember that, though. That's what they tell you. Hey, remember, you're not the Rays announcer tonight. This gotcha. is Rays, Red Sox. Yeah. You're calling it down the middle and I'm like I kind of do that anyway so I'm not real worried about that and you know so they're they are different it's a it's a different set of challenges but at the end of the day once you get into the flow of the game you you what you do and your knowledge and your experience takes over and whoever you're working with. And I really never had a problem with anybody that, that I That's ended good. up working with. That's great. Uh, you know, you, you do another game and, and have some fun doing it. Awesome. Now going back to your, uh, you know, you're in high school. I see that not only, obviously you played baseball, played basketball, golf, you played golf in high school, but you went to Wright State. You eventually were the third overall pick. I didn't realize that until I was doing homework and then I saw some interviews that you did. And that blew me away, like third overall. And it's out of right state. Yeah. So you were obviously that good, third best in the world. And how, how like, coming out of right state? Uh, you know what? I was, I was a guy that uh, I, I was good in, in high school, um, you know, make the all-Ohio teams, all-conference teams 
player of the year, you know, those kind of things in your local little conference, right. the Ashtabula County. But I was undersized. I, I was not, you know, particularly big coming out of high school. 5'9", five, 5'10", five, you know, 165. I probably was maxing out at 85 miles an hour. Now, I could put it where I wanted to, and that's why I was able to have success. You know, you, you, you locate a fastball with a good changeup and any kind of a breaking ball, you, you can handle kids through high school going into college without a, without question. And so I had the, uh, the accolades, the awards, you know, all of that didn't have the size that big time colleges wanted to take I see. a shot on. I can remember, you know, at that point, I, you know, St. Bonaventure was the first official visit that I ever took. Uh, you know, you had Miami of Ohio was involved. Um, really, it came down to, at the end of the day, Wright State and Kent State. Okay. And Kent State's coach, Danny Hall, who's now the head guy at George Tech, he was building Kent State into a power. I gotcha. mean, they were really becoming a, a, a very top-notch program. And it came down to those two, and I got a late phone call. Never forget, I got a late phone call from Ohio State. How would you like to be a Buckeye? Well, growing up in Ohio, who didn't want to be a Buckeye? Yeah. Well, listen, we'll, we'll, we'll call, you know, we're going to put so-and-so in touch with you. Uh, we'll set up an official visit, have you down, and see what we can work out. Great. Never heard from him again. Now, I'm assuming, and I think I even know who the kid was because he was out of Newark, Ohio. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But there was another left-handed pitcher that I had pitched with in Summer Bowl on Team USA who was from Newark going to Ohio State. And I'll bet you anything that he was on the fence. So I was the backup plan. And so they reach out, hey, would you be interested potentially? Oh, okay, this kid, you know, firmly committed. You, then we just don't ever talk to you again. And, and I'll, I'll never forget that. That was when I became a very anti-Buckeye guy. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, it came down to Wright State, Kent State. And and this is the God honest truth. Not that I would not tell the truth anyway, mm-hmm. but this is really what it came down to for real. Wright State's head coach, uh, and it's funny because it's managers in the professional world. Once I know. you get to college, it's coach. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't get it, but that's the way they do it. Ron Nishwitz. And he had pitched uh, for four seasons with the Detroit Tigers in the big leagues. And he was a left-hander. And that's where I wanted to go, the big leagues. And he was a left-hander. If Ron Nishwitz would have been right-handed, I would have gone to Kent State. Oh, my God. I mean, that's it. That I mean, that, it came down to he's a lefty. He pitched wow. in the big leagues. I'm going there. Wow. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I ended up going to, to Wright State. On a side note, I pitched against Ohio State my freshman year. They got, I, I, I got the opening. We had a really good team at Wright State and we're down in Florida on our spring trip. And I get a call in my room. Hey, you're starting tomorrow's game. It was our first game of the year against Missouri. I'm like, I'm starting the first game. Cause at that point, when I'd gone to Wright State that fall, I started to gain some size. I had a really good fall ball, really good, you know, mm-hmm. fall season mm-hmm. and started to get a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. Velocity mm-hmm. started to tick up and I could still locate, mm-hmm. and, but I was still shocked that I got that start because our team was really good. Awesome. Well, I ended up getting rained out. It wasn't against Missouri. I think it ended up being against, um, might've been UIC. I had three starts down there. It was uh-huh. like UIC was one. UCF was another. Really? Chad Matola was their cleanup hitter. He was a sophomore a year ahead of me. I remember them telling me, Hey, the Matola kid, that's one you got to look out for. <laughs> okay, fine. That was our scouting. That was the extent <laughs> of our scouting reports back then. Uh, but yeah, so all that to say, I ended up pitching against Ohio state that season and might be the worst time worst game I've, I've ever so pitched at any level. They beat the living crud out of me. Yeah, and it's weird. Our, our coach came out there. Um, Nishwitz came out there and just undressed me on the mound. Like, oh. you know, you, you got to start knocking some, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah, yeah. it was a really interesting, um, in, an interesting ball game. I got my revenge a couple of seasons later. Against Great. Um, but, Great. but yeah, that, uh, that, that was my freshman year. And that's when things really started to, to, to grow for me. I see. Um, started off you know pretty good and then just improved as the season went on i see and the one thing that ron nishwitz did that really put my name out on the radar of everybody was at the end of that year unbeknownst to me he had got me signed up to go down to millington tennessee as a walk-on for team usa it was the year of the pan-american games and so 
I, I had knew nothing about it. He goes, Oh, sure. by the way, you're, you're going to go down. You're going to walk on. And, and, and so I did. And so I'm, you know, you know, you're not going to make the team. You're uh-huh. one of a couple hundred that are going to walk on. Uh-huh. Then they've got the guys they're going to invite. And you're a freshman, right? State, probably not a sure, chance you're going to sure. make it. And so I go down there, but I made the first couple rounds of cuts. Wow. And then all of a sudden, then I end up getting sent home from there and get a call from the Alaska league, get a call from the Cape Cod league. And now the doors start to open and ended up spending a little bit of the summer that year in Dayton, Ohio, and then up to the Cape Cod league had a nice season there. And now you're on the radar. There you go. And that's how go. it started. I was just talking to somebody today about so many guys that I've known come through that they were good in college, but man, if they were good in the Cape Cod league and especially for hitters, cause they're going to a wood bad league, yes. man, I've seen it happen. I remember Longoria when he got here, he's like, he was with Long Beach and the dirt but when he was so good in the Cape Cod League, that's when the scouts really started noticing. All right, so we move ahead. You're successful. You are now one of the best pitchers in the country. You go third overall to the California Angels. Is it true that you only had four starts in the, in the minors? Is that, yes. is that true? And then, then, then you're pitching in the bigs? Yeah. They, you know, that was an interesting story, too. So the Angels came to me the night before the draft. <laughs> And basically said, because at that time you could have representation, but they couldn't be out in front. So in other words, you couldn't have your agent. My agent, uh, you, you know, uh-huh. was going to be Ron Shapiro. Okay. Uh, Mark Shapiro's father. And so Ron Shapiro was going to be my agent. Now he couldn't talk directly to the angels, but what could happen was the angels could talk to me and then I could take that to Ron bounce it off him That's weird, and then go I back say, to the angels. I That's say, the way that they did it gotcha. to maintain your amateur status. Oh, okay. So they had come to me and said, we are going to make an offer to three different players and whoever takes it, that's who we're going to draft. And I said, okay. And they, you know, they made their offer and yeah, we're not, we're not interested. Okay. Well, we're probably not going to pick you. And I'm like, that's fine. I'm sure it won't be too much longer. Fourth or fifth or sixth. I mean, I'll go right after you. That's whatever you want to do. So that was it. And the next day, you know, I'm sitting around the apartment. The draft started at one o'clock and at one ten, you know, it's not like it is now. Right. You literally were sitting around an apartment waiting for someone to call you on a phone that you hope that they had in their, you know, it was weird. Right. And so I'm sitting around there with a lot of my teammates and family and the phone rang and answered it. This is the California angels. And we've taken you with the third pick. Okay. Perfect. Did not have any contact with them for the next five weeks. Started to wonder if they actually took me. Oh my! They just stoned me after the draft. In fact, it was a couple years later that some guys actually filed to become free agents because they hadn't been given a formal offer within a certain amount of time, and they won. And they won their free agency to be able to go out. And I think oh. one of them ended up signing here with the Devil Rays. Wow! Um, if I remember correctly, uh-huh. I know that that happened. It could have happened with us because, like I said, it was it was over a month. Before I heard from them again. That's unbelievable. It was unbelievable. I don't know how you could have been living in war as a kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And and when they came back, they offered me the same thing that they had offered me the night before the draft. (laughs) And I said, guys, I'm not going to accept it now. Didn't accept it then. I think that they thought, you know, how much better was I going to do in the draft? You really going to go back to Wright State and win a national title? I see. Probably not. I see. Are you going to do much better than the third overall pick? Probably not. Right. So they had a lot of leverage, uh, even though I was a junior, you know, and I had that, I had that threat to go back to school. Am I really going to go back? Right. Probably not. Right. Right. How much better is it going to get for me? And so they knew that and they just played it out. They long played it. And the, the only thing that was good about that was I ended up uh, of the top 10. Um, I ended up with the lowest signing bonus at the top 10, even though I was the third pick, but I was, but all those other guys were calling me and thanking me for oh, holding as long as I did, because if I sign early, yeah, that just ruins the market. Now all of a sudden the guy behind me is not going to get what, you know, I mean, it just, it all the way down. So I just, I held firm and then, and then you got to the point, you're like, let's get this thing going. Yeah. 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 And then finally we did. And, and after it was done, uh, they sent me to Tempe, Arizona to get in game shape. I was out there for about two weeks uh-huh. getting in game shape. I think it was, you know, um, what do they call that? Not instructional. Yeah, league, no. yeah it might have been instructional. Yeah, okay. well, yeah, it wasn't extended spring, obviously. Okay. Yeah, it was instructional, instructional league. So I uh-huh. went out there for, I, didn't, I don't think I even threw in any games, maybe some simulated, but two weeks to get myself and ready to go. And then they sent me to Wichita. I had two starts with Wichita. They sent me to Vancouver. I had two starts with Vancouver. And then I went to the big leagues and I made my debut uh, 
against the Blue Jays in Toronto. Was it? It was. Uh, wasn't Rogers then? It was uh, Sky Dome. Gotcha. Sky Dome. That was the '93. That was the year after they had won the World Series. They would win the right, World Series right. again in '93, and they, I come in relief. Fifty-two thousand people. I, well, yeah, yeah, uh, what was the, what, 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 was, What's going on? Well, you know what it was. It was when I'm walking, running in. I'm thinking uh, like a high knee running back because I didn't want to catch a spike in the turf and and and, oh and rumble. I mean, I, I'm like because it's so loud. It wasn't loud then, yeah. but it's so full. It was like I said. I went back and actually looked. I think I think it was like fifty-two thousand and some change were at that game. And I came in, and the first hitter I face is Paul Molitor. I'm like, wait a minute. I, I'm sitting on the mound. I wasn't thinking this then, but but later yeah. I'm thinking. Three months ago, two and a half months ago, I'm pitching against Eastern Illinois in a conference tournament. Now I'm facing Paul Molitor and the defending World Series champion Blue Jays. What's going on here? I mean, it was crazy. And then I ended up getting a start later that month against the Twins in Minnesota. You know, when they had Puckett and uh, Herbeck sure. and that whole gang. So it was uh, it, it was an interesting baptism into the professional ranks. What a mind! What a mindset, though, that you had that much that much confidence to be able to get it done. Didn't after- know any better. <laughs> I didn't know any better. I really didn't know any better. <laughs> All right. So you made your lead, you know, so um, the Angels, the uh, you go to the Indians, you you're an Ohio kid and you pitched in the world series. Mm-hmm. What, how much, what, what's that like? How much different is it pitching honestly, or is it still the game? You know, uh, world you know, series. I, I can remember when I was getting drafted, Tony LaCava. And I think that he's still uh, assistant general manager with the blue Jays, perhaps like he's way mm-hmm. up somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Tony LaCava was the scout that I was in contact with. And I can remember him telling me now I'm a 21 year old kid, you know, in college. And I remember him telling me during one of our conversations about baseball, he said, not everybody can play in October. And I didn't know what that meant. I'm like, I didn't really, you know, go past that other than really. Yeah. And sometimes the stage is just too big. Not everybody can play in October. And I remember thinking to myself, it's baseball. If, If I can play through September, I can certainly play in October. I mean, it's baseball. What could it be? But again, naive 21-year-old kid. Then I got to my first postseason with the Indians in 1997. And batting practice in the postseason is an event. There's so many people around. That's right. And so you start to realize the eyeballs, the scrutiny, the stage. Everybody is paying attention. And I mean, that's just the first round of the playoffs. It's still the playoffs. Right, and and right. with the Indians, I wasn't even active for the first round. I got right, activated right. in the ALCS against right. the Orioles. And, you know, so then that's when you realized all those years later, you know what? Some guys shrink mm-hmm. in this kind of, you know, under this kind of magne- magnified, you know, eyeballs, yeah. you know, the magnification. Yeah. They, can't, they can't perform as well. And uh, and it's funny. I, I did not have that problem. I relished those moments. I, I, I just I really enjoyed being out there in, in those types of situations. And, you know, that that series with the with the Orioles, I ended up being I remember Mike Hargrove telling me, look, you know, we're adding you to the roster. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to use you. You just be ready from the first pitch of the game. Be ready to go. OK, fine. By the end of that series. I was like one of the, you know, setup guys with Mike Jackson and Paul Ossenmacher with Jose Mesa being our closer. I remember in game six, we were up three games to two. And in game six in Baltimore, they bring me in in the bottom of the 10th of a scoreless game. And it wasn't like they had used everybody else. I mean, we still had a full bullpen and I'm coming in bottom 10. And I, and here's the thing. I don't even think about that at the time. It's like, go out and get your three outs and get out of here. I look back now and I'm like, if you're the Cleveland kid, the Ohio kid that gives up the run and Baltimore walks you off in game six, forces a game seven, knocks you 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 can't even live back. You you gotta move. You gotta move. You know, same thing with game seven of the World Series against the Marlins, but you didn't think that at the time. It was just go out through your job. And I got through that and Tony Fernandez hits a home run in the top of the 11th. I ended up getting the win in that game, pitching that inning. Mesa closed it out and off to the World Series we went. 
It's crazy. Ah, oh, I love these stories. Now we'll, we'll speed it up. I know you're busy. The Diamondbacks. You were, I think you were like the second pick by the Arizona Diamondbacks. Was Their it? first pick, but it was the second overall. Tony oh. Saunders. So what happened oh, there? Okay, was yeah, you, yeah. You've got this is this is interesting how these things work. Expansion draft yeah, yeah, coming yeah. up. Of course, Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Ironically enough, and the Arizona Diamondbacks. We're gonna flip a coin. You call it in the air. Arizona calls it in the air. They called it right. Boom, you win the toss. Now, when you win the toss, this is what your choices were. You can have the first overall pick, or you can take picks two and three. I don't remember that. I didn't know that. So, I about so that. Arizona said, we'll take two and three. And so the Devil Rays take Tony Saunders. And I didn't even realize this until later. Uh, but in talking with Buck Showalter, and, you know, he was the guy there. And, and, and you know, the, the people that were part of that organization. So, you know, they take Tony Saunders. And now the, the Diamondbacks have picks two and three. They're going to get the two guys they want. But they said, we could, we're only going to ever have our first pick. So we know we're going to take you and Jeff Supon, but now we got to decide who are we going to take with two. It doesn't change anything, it, it, you know, as far as salary or anything like that. Right. You're, you have your, already have your contract, but who are we going to take two and then three? So who's going to be our first pick? I see. And so they ended up taking me wow. with two. Wow. And I, I was actually down at Wright State of all places in the training room watching Jerry Colangelo walk out on the stage and say, with our first overall pick, we take Brian Anderson, the Cleveland Indians. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And my phone rang. Well, backing up before that, I had been whispered to <laughs> by a, a higher up in the Indians organization at the time that I was going to be protected at a, I was at a Cavs game and they said, Hey, wink, you didn't hear it from me, but you're going to be protected. So I, I wouldn't be eligible for the draft. Well, they obviously continued to have meetings before the draft was coming mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I'm working in my house and I hear Peter Gammons on the TV say that at least these three pitchers are more than likely going to be uh, available in the draft. Tony Saunders, Brian Anderson, Jeff Supon. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought I was going to be protected. So I started doing some digging with my agent and everything else. And he came back to me, you know, late and said, you know what? You, you may be left unprotected. They, they, and they did, they took me off and they put Chad OJ on. Because you could protect 15. I see. Initially. I see. So anyway, so as I'm down at Wright State and I hear my name called, my phone rings and it's the Diamondbacks. And they're like, we need you in Phoenix tomorrow. Buy a suit. <laughs> I was like, okay, here we go. Boy. And then you start that that wow. Uh, wow. that part of your life. But, wow. um, but I will tell you, going out to the Diamondbacks was a blessing in disguise because leaving Cleveland, the hometown team that I grew up rooting sure. for, coming off of a World Series horrifying loss to the Marlins and right. being a part of that Cleveland not getting it done. You know, that was tough to take because I was the kid with the Browns in the 80s, Kosar, the drive, the fumble, yes. crying myself to sleep those nights. And then I ended up becoming one of those those guys with the Indians, we got a lead bottom of the seventh game seven or bottom of the ninth game seven and they tie it and we lose an extras and we get walked off. And now you're part of that Cleveland disappointment. It was terrible. I see. But getting to go out to Arizona, I got a chance to go out there and Buck said, here, take the ball every, every fifth day you're going to pitch. And, you know, I was able to, to go out there and get a, a full season in and, and kind of get myself established and, and play for, you know, and I played for a lot of good managers. I really did, but none of them touched Buck Showalter. How about the chance that? to play for How him? How about that? He was he he's was a great phenomenal. man, great baseball I, I man. Love, yeah, love the fact that we're watching him do what yes. he's doing right now with Get the match shot. Knew he would turn it around just because, you know, I, I was a I was a part of it. And the guy does not miss a trick. His attention to detail is incredible. His connection to his players has only gotten better through time. And you know, you knew there's accountability, there's responsibility. And, you know, guys perform for him. We're That's watching beautiful. that happen in real time. I love you saying that because I always, like, I always, always liked him. So we speed up, speed up. As it happens for most, and especially pitchers, it ends up being either the shoulder or the elbow. You had two Tommy Johns. Mm -hmm. You gave it your best. Uh, you're uh, relatively still a young man at, the, at that time. How hard was that to realize that I just, I can't pitch anymore. I'm never going to pitch anymore. Or were you like, I've done all I can do and that's it. Like, well, you know, it, it was tough. It, the, the first one was really tough. Um, 
you know, because there were some other instances, you know, I had pitched basically 2004. It was probably torn that most of that year pitched in pain the entire year came back in 2005, let it rest all winter. That was the, that was the, you know, the diagnosis was, you know, tendinosis, whatever they called it and rest it through the winter and come back in 05 strong, ready to go. Well, I was an older player at that point in the last year of my deal with the Royals. And I don't think they cared too much about my future at all. And so I come back into camp in 2005, didn't take very long before it flared right back up. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is not, not real good, you know? And, um, and so I, I tried to, uh, they, they MRI'd it in spring training, told me that was, you know, the tendinosis, but, but you can manage it and this and that and the other. So I started the season and, you know, i five games maybe mm-hmm. that I started and that we were in Baltimore and I came out after the second inning and I had nothing. And my elbow, the, the, oh. the pain was just insane. Oh. And I was sitting on the bench and Mike Sweeney came down to me and he said, uh, Hey, what's wrong with you? I said, dude, my elbow. I mean, this is, it's like, it makes my eyes go cross. It, it hurts so bad every pitch. So he went down and told Tony Pena, Tony Pena ended up pulling me out of that game. And little did I know I would never, I would never get back on the field again. Because I ended up, you know, having the Tommy John um, and, you know, obviously that year was done. Right. And then in 2006, I signed with the Texas Rangers uh, because Buck was the manager there. So he wanted me to come in. We'll rehab you. We'll be good to go. So I go down with uh, with the Rangers, blew it out with the Rangers almost a year to the day they wanted to do the surgery. I'm like, can we push that surgery a week past so I'm not doing it on the same exact date two years in a row? And uh, so I ended up doing it a week later. And then that's when I, I took the, obviously that year was done. I took 2007 off mm-hmm. to fully rehab right. for the full year. Right. And I was living in Cleveland, right. having been a former Indian. Right. That's when they called me and said, hey, we're looking to go to 24 hour a day programming. Would you want to be a part of a TV show called The Tribe Report with Al Pulowski and do some TV? Perfect. So that gave me something to do. And gotcha. that's how I ended up digging into the TV. And we did well enough on the, on the studio show that they said, hey, would you mind doing some three-man booth stuff? That's how I got into the booth for, you know, eight, ten games. There you go. So that, you were on yeah, your way. You knew you had it. They saw that you had it, you know. So kind of in, we're in like the eighth, ninth inning here now. So do you think by what you're doing now for as long as you are and being able to see everything, do you think you know more baseball now, more even with pitching now than you did when you were actually on the field? What do you think? I don't know if I would say that I know more, but there are, you certainly, um, you, you learn all the time. You know what I mean? You're always Don learning. Don would say that even yes, that's even, years even old. up here. So yeah, maybe I maybe I do know a little bit more or have a better feel for the game as a whole. I see. You know, when when you're playing, you're focused on your job. You know, I'm not worried about unless I'm out on the mound, of course. I'm not real worried about where the cutoff man is, and I don't have anything to do about that. Right. That's for that's for the coaching staff and the position players to figure out. I'm worried right. about my next start. Who's it going to be against, and how am I going to attack them? You're very myopic, myopic in your view. It's just you're you're like laser tunnel vision. Right. Now my job is to analyze the whole game. You got to right. see it all, right. and so you know the pitching aspect of it helps me uh, as far as being able to analyze the pitching end of the game. Yeah. But I also feel like I can do the hitting side of things too because it was my job to be able to read those hitters uh-huh. and to see something that they're doing in their swing that is going to make them susceptible Good to point. another pitch. Good point. You know what I mean? Because you're you're breaking down hitters and their swings, so. Why can't you do it from up here? And so I, I think you learn, generally speaking, you learn more about the game mm-hmm. and more of it gets opened up to you. And there are some things even that I can understand what these guys out on the mound are going through because sometimes you don't trust yourself. Like I, I see it from up here as a third party and I go, listen, this pitch in this spot, it's it's over. And sometimes out on the mound, I can remember being in those positions where you're like, yeah, but he's going to be thinking that too. He's not. And He's not. And you, 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 sometimes you give the hitters too much credit <laughs> and you realize that about yourself. Like, you right. know what? Maybe I should have trusted myself a little bit more in certain situations. And I think that anybody that, you know, anybody's going to go through that. Hitters are going to say the same thing about what they do. You know, it, it, that's that's something that's just part of the game. But I think an overall understanding of of the game 
yeah, you're sitting from a bird's eye view with a whole different perspective. So I think there is stuff that you learn more and stuff that you wish you would have, you know, put into practice sure. when you played. But I think that goes for life. anybody in any profession or like, like you just said, or in life in general. Don't we, don't we wish a oh lot of things? Gosh, if I could go back with my, yeah, the kid that got drafted, <laughs> the kid that was with the Indians and you know, with the uh-huh. Diamondbacks and say, hey, listen, guy, uh-huh. let's, let's look over this way. Maybe things would go a little different. Last two. Do you miss being down on the field, close to players, trying to help them out? Do you ever see yourself maybe down the road in a coaching capacity or no? You know what? I would never say I, I like the the interactions that I have with guys from time to time. I try to stay away because here's the thing. I, I'm media now. I'm not a I mean, I'm a former player, but I'm media. And that's sometimes that's how you're viewed. I was going to ask so, you that because some guys, some guys are around the, the, the yeah. body cage, but a lot aren't. I was wondering about that. Yeah. And so, you know, I, a lot of the interactions that I'll have with these guys are either, you know, they're, they're on the plane, they're at the hotel, gotcha. you know, th- different places like that. And so, but I try to stay out of their hair. I, I don't want to be the guy that's lurking. If I don't have something specific to talk to you about, or we're not you know, we're not speaking. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to let, let you be, let, let you be a player and, and I'll stay in my lane. You, you go do your thing. Um, and so th- that's the way that, that I've always viewed it as far as coaching. I, you know, right now I love what I do. I would do this for the rest of my Beautiful. time in the game. I, I, w- I would do it. Never say never. Right. Because you never know what doors could open. So I would never say never, but if I could do my job, Right. I mean, just for, for the rest of my functioning adult life, that's what I would do. I, I love it. I, like I said, outside of the playing aspect, it's the closest thing that you get to the, the butterflies, because when that red light goes on the camera and it's live TV and there's nowhere for you to go except to perform in front of that camera, that's a rush. It's a rush. And, and the little bit of coaching that I did, you know, as the assistant pitching coach, you don't get that rush. Wow. You, you don't That's get, great that you you're saying that, that from the broadcasting so, side. Yeah. No, you, the, the, there's live TV is awesome. I love it. Yeah. Now, last one, advice. What advice would you have? Not so much baseball. We all know we got to work hard and all this and this and this. I'm talking about you've been a successful broadcaster. What would be the advice? You probably get it a lot. A lot of guys want to do play-by-play. Maybe there's some guys that are playing. They're thinking about going in the booth as a color. You've been successful. What's the best advice you could give, Brian? You know what? And keeping it very simple, and we could get into the nuances of, of what I do uh, and, and, and how it works, you know, as you dig into it deeper, but on the surface, be prepared and be yourself. That's it. Be prepared. It's like anything else. If you're not prepared, it's going to come across to the viewer. You're going to be exposed. So be prepared and be yourself. Don't try to be the guy next to you. Don't try to be the guy that you've replaced. Don't try to be the guy that be yourself. You know, and, and, and let your personality shine through. Don't let it overload the game, you know, but, but game first. But this game allows opportunities for you to have some fun with it and, and to, to let your personality, you know, out there a little bit and, and have fun during a broadcast. And that's it. So I, be prepared, be yourself, and have a blast. It's funny that we were even talking about mm-hmm. this because I got a phone call uh, from Vinny Rotino. He does pre and post game for the Milwaukee Brewers. Okay. And he was listening around to different announcers because he had gotten the word that he's going to get to do the analyst job gotcha. for a few games gotcha. this season. So he said, I started listening to different guys around the league. And he, he said, I thought that our styles would match up the best. And Brian Anderson, who I have come to know, the play, play guy for the Brewers, put us in touch. And so he was picking my brain about all this stuff. So I'm kind of been nice. going back and forth with him, uh, you know, to get him ready to go and comfortable and, you know, just telling him these kind of things. And, you know, sure enough, he he did his, his games. Yeah, I think he's got some more coming up and I'll get a chance to see him when we go to Milwaukee. Nice. Um, but, but yeah, he said, man, I had a blast. Thanks for everything. I mean, so we've got cool? this kinship now. That's awesome. Because, so, you know, I, listen, I've been in his shoes. And awesome. It's, it's nice when someone can, can let you know. It's not that hard. Just do your homework and be yourself and things will work. Thank you so much, Brian Anderson. Rock Riley, thank you, buddy. Appreciate yes. it. Yes. 
You know what I found? The, the, the most interesting, well, there was a lot of interesting uh, stories and, and, and things that I could take from that interview with Brian, but he's one of the first ones. Usually, when I interview former players, they all mostly have all told me the same thing. Even if they've gotten into broadcasting, nothing beats being down on the field in uniform. Now, when Brian told me, until you heard it right there, there's nothing like when that red light goes on the camera and it's live TV. He's right. I love live. I hated taping stuff because in the back of your mind, you kind of know that you can, if you mess up, you can do it again. I love live. Some people don't like it. I love live. It's one done. Boom. Gone. You don't go back. Don't go. That's what I love. Love live radio, live TV. Love it. So he obviously loves it. And he, and then when I asked him, do you ever think you go back into coaching? And he said, mm, I'd never say, never, but I hope that I can continue to do this for just as long as I can in my career. And I found that interesting. Now, if I were to tell him, I can give you a time machine and would you rather go back on the mound? And if you were healthy and all those things, but a lot of usually former players, coaches that are doing broadcasting, They've all, they've all told me they would rather be in uniform, down on the field, experiencing the wins, the losses, and all that type of thing. John Lynch is a perfect example. By the way, Brian Anderson, thank you very much, man. He took the time. It's a long grind, the baseball season. Oh, my God. And I really appreciate that. So thank you, B.A. Thank you very much. But uh, John Lynch, I ran into him at the NFL owners meetings. And he looked at me, he goes, oh, you're keeping in good shape. I said, yeah, like two years ago or three years ago now, you know, I had this uh, operation. I lost all the weight. I put some back on. And he's like, I got to get, I, I got to, you know, I was used to always working out and doing things phys- physical and being on the field. And now he goes, I sit in front of a computer too much and I'm just behind. I can't take it. He goes, I don't take it. I don't feel right. I'm going to, I'm going to amp it up. I'm going to start really working out, really working out hard. I got to do it. I got to do it. I can't take it anymore. Uh, I'm sedentary. I'm just sitting down, you know, um, Phil Esposito, the hockey legend, the lightning founder, the, uh, hockey hall of famer, the great Phil Esposito always would say, we say, Phil, you miss playing? He goes, hell yeah. I always want to go down on the, on the ice. I want to play again, but I hate putting on all the gear. That's a pain in the ass. <laughs> it is hockey guys. I don't know how hockey guys do it. You know, they do the, the morning skate when they're going to have a game and they got to put on all that gear. And sometimes they're out there for 20 minutes, half hour max, very light. Then they got to come back in. They got to take off all that gear. Then they got to shower. Then they got to get dressed. Then they got to go out. Or sometimes they don't get totally to shower. They just walk out in their shorts because we're in Florida, remember? Uh, I'm just thinking of some pictures, headmen and that, that type at most. And then they go back and they take a nap. And then they go back over to the arena and then put on all that gear. It takes a long time, you know, compared to like baseball gear, something like that. But anyway, uh, what I found surreal this week was, it was actually last week. I forgot to put this on uh, last week's podcast. It was surreal. I honestly thought that we, as media geeks, reporters, would never be back in an NFL locker room again. I don't know if you're aware, but players, they can't stand the media. They don't like when the when the doors open and here we come into their domain. The locker room is their house. And what goes on in the locker room stays in the locker room. It's not politically correct. It's a brotherhood. It's just how it is, okay? And they loved not having media in for uh, the coronavirus for, what, two years, three years? And I thought we'd never go back. And it was surreal. It was like, okay, it was the end of the first preseason game. And I was, you know, asking around, are we going to go in the locker room? And supposedly the the protocols are. Now, is it, look, going in the locker room is strange. Some guys are getting ready. They're getting showered. They're getting changed. It's, that is, that is weird, but that's just how it goes. But you're able to go over 
and talk to a specific player. If you got a question about a play, you didn't have that prior to this because what happens is they, the media, the uh, media relations people, and this was in all the sports uh, for a long while, they bring out who they want to bring out. They'll go to a player. You want to talk? No, I don't want to talk. Or let's say a player really screwed up. Uh, he got burned on a, a DB, got burned on a touchdown. They're not going to bring him out. You know what I mean? So you can't really find out. You're not really reporting. You're only like, it's almost like PR. Well, here we go. Here we go. Boom. All right. You go downstairs. You see them come through the tunnel. All right. Bruce Arians was hysterical. Bruce Arians, the former Bucks head coach, who is now senior consultant to the general manager, Jason Light. He's walking, 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 and all of a sudden, boom, he turns and he goes right through the fence and he goes to his car. He parked his car in the in the big uh, breezeway hallway right there. <laughs> Blaine Gabbert was walking by, the backup quarterback, and he saw it and he kind of opened the fence and then security came and the players coming and Bruce Aarons is just backing out and hightailing it out. And I get it. Like he's around a lot. He's around a lot more than a lot of people think uh, as a consultant. He still loves it. He's got a lot of knowledge. They, they, they welcome his expertise and, but that's it's Todd Bowles' team. Like he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to overstep his bounds. Like, you know what I mean? He's seen enough. Boom, boom. And so he backs out and then drives out right by us, right by the TV trucks and all kinds of media. And it's helter skelter right after a game. And they're bringing out the food and they line it up in these boxes, uh, whether it's Chick-fil-A, whether it's PDQ, whether it's whatever to the, uh, teams, you know, or the visit team when they're going to go right out to go. There's a bus right there and the bus takes them right to the tarmac to the plane to go fly back home. But anyway, so it was like, oh, and you have an option again. Do you want to go in the locker room or do you want to go to the, to the press conference area? Because they'll, they'll bring out, they'll bring out usually the stars, usually the quarterback um, and always the head coach. And so we did that. And then the locker room opened and we went in and he, it was like, wow. It's like, wow. I, I never thought that I would like be back walking around in the locker room again. And it, and it struck me too, because this was only after the first preseason game and you're like, whoa, there's so many players in here and they have temporary like lockers and they've doubled up and they before the first cuts. And it was like just a lot of players, a lot of, a lot of young guys, man, that it's their dream. And, and some, some are just not going to have that dream. And materialize, you know, there's not enough number, there's not enough roster spots, you know, that's going to probably be it. What, what do they do? Do you go to the CFL? Do you go to Canada and you don't make much and it gets cold? You know, there's, there, what, where, that's it, you know, but anyway, and then everybody went away and go right over to the kicker because the kicker, Borgalis, the backup kicker, he he made a nice field goal, and then he made when they called a timeout, didn't count, and then he law he missed the last field goal to win the game, and everybody went over to him, and he's got a good personality about it. Like he turned around, he was getting ready to turn around, and all of a sudden it's like three deep of media. Like what happened? And he's just like I just I missed it, man. I just missed it. I felt good on the other one. I just missed it, you know. But prior to this. You know, it, it, he didn't blame the snap. He didn't blame anything, and good for him. But I'm just saying, it's it's wow. There's going to be reporting. You're going to be seeing some features. It doesn't really make too much of a difference to you, but it was just kind of surreal. Of something, picture there. I'm sure there's something that you have not done for the last three years that all of a sudden you're now doing, right? I'm sure there's, there's gotta be something, uh, you know, it, it's changed everything, but, but it was surreal. It was surreal to be back. Everything was opened up. Everything was the same. It was back again. And I was like, wow, 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 wow. Uh, so the other night I was seeing all this stuff from Barstool, Barstool sports. Now, if you're a little older, you probably don't follow Barstool. <clears throat> if you're younger and you like sports, most likely you do follow Barstool. 
And I was just thinking about it. Like my, how times have changed. The reason why I'm following more and more Barstool is, uh, the, they call themselves the midgets midget. It was midget wrestling and now midget boxing. Uh, they had a couple of midget fights, small little people fights, but they call themselves midgets, uh, in this. And I interviewed demo, a former pro uh, midget wrestler. And he, he did this podcast, uh, Stephen Che with Barstool. Uh, so I'm getting to know more and more through here and there. I'm following more and more of their clips. This Stuart Finer, who's very loud, but he's got so much energy. He's like my age. He was on a Joey Diaz podcast. And I, you know what? I was like, you know what, man? Good for him. It's inspirational at your age with all this energy, the young people. So I'm finding more and more, but mostly people that my age probably are not following Barstool. And I was just thinking about all the options now that we have. Like it used to be, all right, if Sports Center was on and you got a kid that's 12 years old or 13, your boy likes sports, and then I like sports, and maybe there's a brother that came through, easy, you know, or somebody that's 27 or eight, Sports Center was on, that's all you had. Everybody watched Sports Center. But now, if you're young, Barstool, if you're in between the young and the old, it might be the Pat McAfee show, you know, and if you're still like the old school ESPN, that may be your thing. Uh, it's just so different. You know what I mean? It's so different. We have so much at our fingertips and it's just going to continue to uh, to go that way. And I was thinking about, there was a sports center anchor. I really like him. Uh, Scott Van Pelt. And Scott Van, I got to meet Scott Van Pelt on one of these movie junkets. It was for the movie Concussion, the film, the con- uh, Concussion with Will Smith. And we flew to, I was on this, uh, there's a bunch of people, like I was from Tampa. There was another Roxanne, my friend was from Tampa. Somebody might be from Chicago, somebody from Detroit, somebody from LA, somebody from Indianapolis, a media person in each market in that did TV. And they used to fly us to either Beverly Hills or New York. I think we did concussion in New York. And Will Smith came and sat down. I tried to get him on the high school players. And what about concussion? He wasn't biting because at the time, Bright House, who I was working for, was hot and heavy into the high school stuff. So I was trying to localize it. But I remember um, being on the bus to go watch the film. They, They do a private screening for us the night before. Take us to a nice dinner. You wake up the next morning. Everybody goes in and you get like five minutes with all of the stars. And uh, it was really cool deal. Then you bring that footage back to your local station and then you play it. It's kind of localized and it publicizes the movie. And also you get a big name guest, you know, for your market. But Scott Van Pelt was there from ESPN because it was concussion and it was Will Smith. And he was really, really great sense of humor, man. I talked to him for a while, just a real down to earth guy. But I remember it was either right before that or right after that. Somebody asked him, do you think social media, i.e. Twitter will be around in, you know, 20 years? And his response was, God, I hope not. And I was like, oh, I'd love that. There's what, what do you think, man? I mean, now I'm so ingrained in it. It's like, it's a part of my life all the time. And it used to be a lot simpler time, but there's pros and cons. You know, there's, you have, you have information at your fingertips. I'll give you one. When do you hear this? I'm at the Bucks game in the press conference, uh, press box. And I'm sitting next to Carmen. Carmen worked for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, did a great job for, I think, about six years. She's moved on and up to the draft network. They got a lot of money, 
Everybody is remote. She wanted to do more national reporting. She's loving it. She's living back in Chicago. She told me she doesn't live far from Soldier Field, although it's really hard to get to where the Bears practice and train in Lake Forest because some of that you got to, there is, I think there is the train. Is it the train or the bus? But then you got to still take an Uber and blah, 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 blah. But my point is, I looked over. Now, I, I bring my laptop. I got a notepad and a pen. And I'm writing down notes. And I look over and Carmen has no notepad and no notes. She's got a, she's got a nice little laptop a more updated, smaller version, a good, better one than I got. And then she's also got her phone. She doesn't even have a pen out. And I started looking down the row, the aisle, and everyone that was younger, they don't use a pen or a paper a pad anymore. <laughs> like notes, everything is done on a laptop or a phone. And I'm like, Oh my God, am I that old? Am I like, wow. And, and, and almost, I looked down and I had one of these like 35 cent note spiral notepads. I got one right here with my notes right here with the, you get out like Walmart for 35 cents. And I looked down, I'm like, I look like I'm such an old geezer using this notepad <laughs> with a pen. Really? They don't even, there's no pen, there's no pad, you know, it's just funny. It's just funny. And I get a kick out of it. You know what, you know what I'm saying? All right. Um, oh, let, let, let me finish with this. I, I'm a little under the weather today, so I got to take another sip of water here, but uh, thanks for hanging with me. What'd you think of the Manti Teo documentary on Netflix? <clears throat> Have you seen it? Holy shit. I was blown away. That whole, the whole thing to me, even to this day still, I, I know that I would, you know, you'll say never say never. I would not fall for a fake girlfriend <clears throat> for a long time. I, 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 I gotta see her. I gotta see you. But he is such a nice guy. And he even forgives Renaya slash Lene the guy that pretended to be the woman that was in love with him, but that, what a piece of crap that guy is or, or she, he's transitioning to be a, a woman. Uh, that's fine. It's just to, to fake, to put him through that. She, he actually, how did, how did he even make it to the NFL? The game, it's a national championship game and Notre Dame, he's not himself. Like, and you know, it's a fake is being in critical condition, fake breathing in the hospital and going to die and then come back to life and all this. And I, I just, it's just, oh, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't take the hit, her, him, but yet Manti Teo is just so forgiving, incredible. What an incredible human being. He deserves something, man. If I tell you what, it's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it yet, it will blow you away. Blow you away. Um, incredible. Incredible. And was I part of the jokes too with the fake girlfriend and all that? Yes. Yes, I was. Yes, I, I got a kick out of it too back in the day. But now after seeing that, like Manti Teo, you deserve the world. You are a special human being. Incredible. Now he's got a wife, I believe. They either, either have a kid or expecting. But his career was cut short. I mean, just, oh my God, unbelievable, unbelievable. All right, listen, I'm going to head out of, out of here. I got a couple of good ones that uh, I'm, uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to play next week. But again, thanks for hanging in there with me, guys. All right. And thank you to Brian Anderson of the Rays. And I'll talk to you next Tuesday. All right. Hang in there. Let's do it. Let's do it. We're closer to the fall. All right. Thank you. This is a dark to light quick fix on Radio Influence. 
For those of you who don't know who Dr. McCullough is, Dr. Peter McCullough is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist who is managing the cardiovascular complications of both the viral infection and the injuries developing after the COVID-19 vaccine. We're at the place where you've made your entire career in this institution. You didn't see it coming. Now you see it. Is this happening across the board with colleagues that are still afraid to speak out? Because you guys were the trailblazers here with this, waking people up to it. There's something about drinking the Kool-Aid, which changes the human mind. And what I mean by this, estimates are 96% of doctors took the COVID-19 vaccines. And I can tell you probably 99% of doctors like myself have taken all the vaccines prior to COVID. So in a sense, we have you know, had a big drink of the vaccine Kool-Aid for a long period of time. And what history will speak to is once doctors have had the Kool-Aid, they can think objectively. In the first great cocaine epidemic, late 1800s, early 1900s, doctors were hooked as a profession on in cocaine. Uh, the very first uh, medicinal products from Merck and Pfizer, all the companies were cocaine. It was in Chianti wine, Coca-Cola, all the research was self-experimentation with cocaine. It took decades for the medical profession to basically come to reckoning that cocaine was ruining themselves and ruining their patients. Fast forward a few decades, doctors are fully engaged in the tobacco uh, uh, craze that took over the, the, the country. And doctors were smoking. They were on advertisements for smoking. Doctors refused to recognize that smoking caused any problems. It took 40 years from the time it was known that smoking caused lung cancer for doctors finally to fully recognize this. So I can tell you when doctors buy into something, they lose their objectivity. And the vast majority of doctors who are questioning the vaccines and the safety of the vaccines, like myself, we haven't taken them. So we can objectively look at it. The doctors who have taken the vaccines, very few are coming out with any regret. Dark to Light can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.